You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Welcome to the next edition of the East Anglia, East Anglia, I beg your pardon, of News Talk. Uh, the producer is Joan Hogarth, and the reader and editor is myself, Graham Parley. And I'd like to go through a couple of things. First of all, uh, there are a couple of articles where the pronunciation of some of the names or words uh, I've had to check, so I will point that out at the time. And you can also feel free to correct me if I have got it wrong. So what I'm going to do is start with uh, headlines, first of all. Two headlines. And the first headline is Campaigners call for removal of dangerous cycle lane bollards. It's claimed that the measures suffer from lack of maintenance and are poorly used. Dangerous, an eyesore and a waste of money. These were some of the terms used this week by residents and shopkeepers demanding the removal of two sets of cycle lane bollards in Bury St Edmunds. The cycle lanes were created on Beaton's Way and in Risbygate Street last October as part of a government drive to introduce safe cycling during the pandemic. As an emergency measure, it meant they could be built within a week's notice on a six-month trial basis. A year later, town residents and shopkeepers are calling for the removal of the bollards, which they say have made cycling unsafe, have hit their trade and are an eyesore. Two buried town councillors have also backed the residents, issuing FOI requests to the County Council for the consultation figures and starting a petition for the lane's maintenance. Howard Estate resident Billy Wappet said the Beatonsway lane is unsafe and hardly used. It is never cleared out and as a result it is full of leaves, rubbish, pigeon mess and even sometimes glass. The bollards segregating the cycle lane from the traffic should be ripped up like they have done in other places in the country. The pavement has also become dangerous, especially for older and disabled people, with all of the debris. The cycle lane in Risbygate Street has been the subject of a public consultation, which was extended by six months in March. John Balaam of Balaam's Music said, We were enraged when they extended the consultation period. The sooner this wretched cycle lane is removed, the better. It's just an eyesore in what is supposed to be a conservation area. It has harmed our trade with people unable to drop things off for repair or make collections and is a nightmare for disabled people. It's also not used. Suffolk County Council was awarded £376,501 in the first round of government funding last year to create the lanes. The Bury St Edmunds cycle lanes had been identified previously as part of a cross-party five-year plan for possible permanent use. The County Council had to use or commit the emergency money to cycling initiatives by October last year or it had to be sent back. Three sets lanes were planned, including Risbygate Street, Beaton's Way and Tollgate Lane, Looms Lane, Northgate Street and Musto Street. Only Beaton's Way and Risbygate Street went ahead. The other schemes are still on hold. According to an FOI request submitted to the County Council by Town Councillor Donna Higgins in April, as of March 12th, only 9.4% of just over 1,000 respondents thought the Risbygate Street cycle lane was working well. 
Town councillor Katie Parker, meanwhile, has started a petition for the Beatonsway Lane to be regularly cleared following complaints. The lane is virtually unusable due to rubbish, grass, weeds and build-up of leaves. I've even driven behind cyclists who don't use it as it's unsafe, she said. A spokesperson for Suffolk County Council said, Beaton's Way has been identified as a priority route in Suffolk's walking and cycling priority list. This cycle route has been in place for a number of years, as a painted-on carriageway cycleway. We have been made aware of the maintenance issues with the cycle lane on Beaton's Way, and have conducted separate sweeps of the area to keep it clean. The trial segregated cycle path will be subject to review by the Council. An online survey to capture public opinion on the Risbygate Street over the 11 months has become more positive with 67% of responses in the last quarter saying the scheme was working well. He added no data had been sent for a review of Beaton's Way and the Council was awaiting information about further funding from the government. A spokesman for West Suffolk Council said, We are responsible for cleaning the footpath in Beaton's Way, and do so once a week. As part of the cycle lane trial, Suffolk County Council has taken on responsibility for clearing the cycle lane. We sweep Risbygay Street on a daily basis and the pavement on a regular basis. Yep. The next uh, um, headline is Warehouse for Delivery Firm. A developer has gained planning permission for a warehouse which will be taken on by a national delivery company at a Bury St Edmunds business park. Janik won consent for the warehouse at Suffolk Park to be occupied by Parcel Courier Hermes ParcelNet Limited. It has also secured approval for a speculative 160,000 square feet warehouse and both units form phase three of the 2.3 million square feet Suffolk Park development. Contractor Parkway has won the contract to build the units with construction due to start imminently for completion in August. Ben Outen, Development Director of JNIC, said, We pre-let the 76,000 square feet unit to Hermes earlier in the year. This shows the strong and sustained demand at Suffolk Park over the last couple of years for a range of sizes. Julie Baird, Director for Planning and Growth at West Suffolk Council, said they were proud their work to they were proud their work to invest in and secure the infrastructure and the land for Suffolk Park was continuing to attract and create new employment opportunities. The Suffolk Park allocation was always intended to cater for a range of employment types, such as company headquarters, logistics operations and units for start up small businesses, as well as a strong mix of skilled job, she said. We are seeing these coming forward, which is good news for the people of West Suffolk. Companies taking space at Suffolk Park to date include Wirtz Group for the Sketches Distribution Centre, MH Star UK Limited, Unipark Logistics, Treat, Sealy and the East of England Ambulance Service NHS Trust. Now I'm going to start uh, reading some general items. And the first one is free weekend car parking in the run-up to Christmas. With the Christmas shopping season now in full swing, two extra Bury St Edmunds car parks will be available free of charge for visitors to the town. Green King is opening its car park at no cost during weekends in the run-up to December the 25th, while West Suffolk County Council, sorry, I beg your pardon, West Suffolk Council is making free parking available in Olding Road. 
Green King is making 200 spaces at its car park off Cullum Road, about 10 minutes walk from the town centre, available for parking from 8am to 5pm on Saturdays and Sundays. Joe Crickler, Head of External Communications at Green King, said, We're always keen to support our community in Bury, so we're pleased to be able to offer our car park at no cost to those coming to town for weekend Christmas shopping. The council's Olding Road car park, which is about 10 to 15 minutes walk from the town centre and has 300 spaces, will also be available to the public to use at no cost at the weekends. Mark Walsh, West Suffolk Council, Director for Operations, said, We are delighted to have the support of Green King, one of the town's biggest employers. As we approach such an important time of the year for many town centre businesses, both Green King's car park and our own car park in Olding Road offer more choice for people visiting the town on the weekends between now and Christmas, at no cost to drivers and offer an alternative option to our busy town centre car parks for people who want to beat the queues and are happy to park and walk. Park and walk will be offered in both car parks over the four weekends in the run-up to Christmas, starting tomorrow. The next item is restaurant plan for shop. A vacant former clothes shop in Bury St Edmunds Town Centre could become a Greek restaurant under new plans submitted to West Suffolk Council. The empty Jaeger shop, which is Andy's records in the 1980s, and 1990s could become the Olive Grove. George Contakos has applied for listed building consent to install a flue and extraction ventilation system and to repaint the front elevation of 90 St John Street, which is Grade 2 listed. A design and access statement by the Ely Company on behalf of Mr Contakos, who also runs the Olive Grove in Cambridge, said the front facade of the shop that is currently looking worn will be treated with green coat of paint, colour subject to approval, to match the restaurant's image along with the addition of a sign. 90 St John Street dates back to the early 19th century with a long 20th century rear extension. My next item is... <coughs> excuse me. A vital community centre, which has served the people of Bury St Edmunds for over 50 years, is to close permanently. The new Bury Community Centre in St Olaf's Road in the Howard Estate will close its doors for the last time today, with builders set to come in next week to demolish the building. It will make way for a new centre nearby. Following the news, residents, a councillor and a community stalwart have shared their memories of the old centre. Paul Hoffensperger, West Suffolk councillor for St Olaf's Road, has been heavily involved in the project to build the new community centre and started going to the old building around 2005 when he was elected as county councillor for the area. He said some of his happy memories involved attending Howard's Estate Residents Association meetings the Christmas parties and the Queen's Jubilee events. Ernie Broom, former chairman of Howard Estate Association of Residents and Tenants, said the centre built in 1968 had played a big part in residents' lives, especially when the estate was young and people did not know each other that well. It kept the community together, he said, and then it was all the clubs that went there. He said the centre provided children's clubs when there was nothing for them to do before. Ernie, 85, who was awarded a British Empire Medal in 2015 for his services to the Howard Estate, volunteered at the centre over the years as a football coach and still runs the bingo night once a month. He said he was optimistic about the new centre. If they do it right, it's going to be fantastic, he said. Residents have taken to social media to share their memories of the old centre as well. 
Carolyn Elizabeth said, We all have so many memories of that place. Discos, weddings, parties, christening, bingo, etc. Will be a sad day to share their memories of the old community centre. Lucy Broomfield said, Dad said he had the first do there. It was his 18th birthday after it first opened. Maureen Ennis said, We fought so hard to get it and to see it go. And Catherine Graham said, Sad in one way, but it has served its time. Construction of the new community centre started at the end of last year. An announcement on the new community centre will be coming soon. Moving on to the next item, which is a driver shortage is blamed for lack of bus services. A bus company boss has blamed driver shortages for a lack of services after complaints from residents. One Bury St Edmunds resident said their Stevenson's of Essex bus service was non-existent. However, Bill Hyron, manager director of the company, said staff shortages in the industry were to blame for the lower frequency of buses. The resident from Bury Harris Estate said buses were not arriving as often as scheduled and then only saw one bus during the whole day. Despite the introduction of an emergency timetable, which should see a bus arrive every hour. They said the lack of transport meant some people had struggled to get to West Suffolk Hospital for appointments. Mr Hyron said there were significant shortages of bus drivers in many areas. These have been developed in the last few months and are a result of post-Covid reappraisal of lifestyles, Brexit, competition from vacancies in other sectors, not just HGV, but van deliveries, Stansted Airport and other roles which perhaps don't involve working shifts, he said. These shortages have affected a number of Stevenson's depots, and whilst we have an ongoing programme to recruit and train staff to drive buses, no DVSA driving tests were carried out for around 12 months during COVID. And even though they have now recommenced, it takes up to three months for a car driver to go through the necessary medical licensing, training and testing process to drive a bus. He added, there were ongoing problems at the DVLA, which were slowing down new applications and the company was still being faced with higher than normal short-term illness due to COVID isolation. Faced with shortages of this magnitude, we have the option of randomly cancelling services each day or introducing revised emergency timetables at lower frequency, which requires less staff to operate, he said. Whilst neither is what we would ideally wish to do, the latter at least gives customers some certainty and the ability to plan their journeys better. We continue to recruit and train new drivers and we will start to return to normal timetables as soon as we are able. The next item is residents in Hadley are hoping that a review of lorry routes being carried out by Suffolk County Council will stop large vehicles travelling through their town. The review, which started on October the 22nd and runs until December the 17th, will consider changes to the highway network, including new strategic roads, new lorry watch areas and air quality management areas in Suffolk. One resident who has lived in Hadley for the last year said, Bizarrely, the 1070, the B1070 that is, is actually a designated lorry route, so heavy lorries regardless of whether they are making deliveries to Hadley or not, are going through the town. The resident, who did not wish to be named, added, clearly it would be in everyone's best interest, not only the residents of Hadley, but the hauliers themselves. If they realised they were wasting fuel and time, and energy, fighting their way through a small market town, as opposed to having their lorries remain on the bypass for which it was designed. Leaflets have been sent out to people living in the town, entitled 
living with lorries. Hadley doesn't have to. It goes on to say, for the first time in 10 years, Hadley has the opportunity to take action to make its streets not only safer, but less polluted. In the leaflet, residents are encouraged to contact Hadley Town Council to share their views. The Town Council has to remain impartial, but can pass on feedback to Suffolk County Council. Councillor Mick Fraser, Suffolk County Councillor for the Hadley Division, said... Suffolk County Council is now carrying out its lorry plan review. It will be seeking the views of town and parish councils. Currently, the B1070 from Gallows Hill through to Lady Lane is designated as a lorry access route on the network, and I would encourage residents to pass their comments on to the future of this to Hadley Town Council. Information on the lorry route review plan in Suffolk can be found on the County Council's website suffolk.gov.uk That's suffolk.gov.uk The review covers the whole of Suffolk and will examine changes that have been put in place since the plan was last updated in 2011. And you can contact Hadley Town Council regarding the B1070 by emailing Clerk at hadleytowncouncil.gov.uk I'll repeat that. Clerk at hadleytowncouncil.gov.uk My next item is uh, on some of the past history of Bury St Edmunds. And in this case it refers to Playhouse Cinema. Situated in the very heart of the town, in Buttermarket, the Playhouse Cinema was opened by the Mayor, Alderman Kai, on Tuesday the July the 21st, 1925, as part of Douglas Bostock's cinema empire in East Anglia. The first film, shown at 7pm, was the silent movie Scaramouche, starring silver-screen heartthrob Raymond Navarro. Ticket sales amounted to £41, which was generously split between the District Nursing Association and the West Suffolk Hospital. As the Theatre Royal was now closed, it was hoped that the Playhouse, with its orchestra pit and stage, would replace it as a theatre. In Bury, the main competitors were The Central, which is today's Abigate Cinema, and the ill-fated Odeon. Always a well-liked venue, the seats at the back were the most popular for obvious reasons. After World War II, the Playhouse was taken over by Kinemas, East Anglia Limited, which showed the first CinemaScope film in Bury in 1955. A biblical tale, The Robe, starring Richard Burton and Gene Simmons. Like the Odeon, the Saturday morning pictures were well attended by youngsters. Cartoons and westerns such as Tom Mix, Hopalong Cassidy, Roy Rogers, The Cisco Kid and The Lone Ranger were most popular, closely followed by Rintin Tin and Lassie. The mandatory serial with its cliffhanging ending always ensured you turned up the following week. These were the days when the national anthem was played was still played at the cinema and pantomimes and reviews were popular. Christmas Eve 1959 saw the playhouse close. Though a remembrance lingered on until 1973 via the playhouse bar, interestingly, the playhouse cinema bucket seats would eventually go into the restored Theatre Royal for its reopening in 1965. New owners of the Playhouse, the Cooperative Society, opened the Quality House, a department store selling everything for the home. It closed after many years to become an Argos catalogue store, which would leave in November 2017. The Cambridge Building Society is set to open an office in the building imminently. And I'm going to move on to some letters now. 
And the first one is from uh, Willoughby Goddard, Hepworth. NHS has been a challenge for all governments. Our reply to the letter from Peter Critchley, Bury Free Press, November the 19th, and would remind him that all governments in recent years have struggled with the NHS. It is a financial bottomless pit, with life expectancy rising and people demanding more and more from the service. Add to this a national pandemic, and clearly there are going to be unreasonable demands on NHS resources. I love armchair critics who snipe from the sidelines, like Mr Critchley. They claim Boris Johnson is a known buffoon and know the unstated objectives of the Tory party regarding privatisation. They must be very clever people. I do not feel sorry for those who voted for Boris. I applaud them because the alternative would have been a Corbyn government and all the nonsense that would have entailed. Clearly Mr Critchley knows better how to run things than any of the Tory party. So I look forward to seeing his name on the ballot paper of the next general election. And that was from Willoughby Goddard Hepworth. And the next letter is from Martin Webb, Bury St Edmunds. Sight would be ideal for young disabled. Last week I went for my booster jab in Chevington Close. The inoculation centre was in a redundant school for disabled children present school having recently moved to new premises. I do fear that the redundant buildings will be bulldozed to make way for a new and for some profitable housing development. This I would find a great pity, as there is a pressing need for establishments for disabled young persons over the age of 18. As a society, we do as well as many and much better than most although by no means perfectly, in our provision for disabled children and young people. However, once the children become come of age at 18, they are deemed adult, and the parents and or carers are left to negotiate the labyrinth of adult provision alone. This is strange to me, for I, like many other able-bodied persons, moved almost seamlessly from my school to higher education. Although there is a provision for disabled young people, more is needed. I fear that this opportunity to add to the existing provisions in Bury will be lost if the present buildings are destroyed to make way for yet more unaffordable housing. The redundant special school could so easily be reconfigured as a further education centre for young people over the age of 18. I sincerely hope that my fears will not be realised and that these buildings will be repurposed for the benefit of those who do not hold all the aces. And that was a letter from Martin Webb, Barry St Edmunds. The next letter uh, was from John Watkin via email. Town is starting to look untidy. Bury St Edmunds is becoming very untidy. When a road repair has been completed, the relevant direction signs haven't been removed, causing drivers more unnecessary miles. Also, bollards need cleaning and need replacing. I can understand during the pandemic nothing was done, but not now that things are getting back to normal. Traffic is back to pre-pandemic levels, if not busier. And that was from John Watkin via email. Continuing with uh, letters. This is from Mrs Bird, Bury St Edmunds. Surgery staff were kind and helpful. I just wanted to say thank you to the staff at Mount Farm Surgery today, Wednesday. I was helped by all the reception staff, Nurse Heidi, Dr Hughes and Dr Tennant. I was in discomfort and distress and was helped enormously by all the team very quickly. Thank you to our wonderful NHS. And that's from Mrs Bird, Bray St Edmunds. And this is a letter from 
uh, sorry, an email from Michael and Anne Tarod uh, via email. And it is, thank you to staff at Cycle King. Many thanks to Mark, the manager, and his staff at Cycle King in Bury St Edmunds on Remembrance Sunday. My wife Anne was feeling faint at standing for so long. I went into Cycle King and Mark was so understanding and immediately got the chair and went to get a glass of water and reassured if anything like an ambulance was needed. Luckily, after the water and resting, everything was all right. So well done, Mark and staff. Chivalry is alive and buried. Many thanks. And that was from Michael and Anne Tarod. Next letter is from Neil Mawson, and that was also via email. No action over road problems. Just how bad does a road need to be before Suffolk Highways intervenes to tackle the problem? I sent photographs of the problem along Spring Lane and Bury St Edmunds. Virtually the whole of Spring Lane has a significant amount of weeds and shrubs growing on the edges. Road markings are impossible to see on large stretches. It is a danger to traffic and very unsightly. In their reply they said, We believe that at this time it does not warrant remedial action. However, we will continue to monitor the location as part of our routine inspections, and if the matter worsens significantly, we will take action. It can't actually get any worse. When does remedial action kick in? And that was from Neil Mawson via email. Now I'd like to actually move on to uh, something different. And as many listeners will probably recall, I often do this. And this one is an article on devotion to coffee. Regardless of how coffee was discovered, it's no secret that the population worldwide is obsessed. Finland is a world leader when it comes to coffee consumption, with each Finn drinking an estimated 12 kilograms of coffee per year. That's more than double the amount Italians drink. Thanks to the UK's long-standing infatuation with tea, our culture was somewhat slow to catch on in London. But the past decade or so has seen a huge <coughs> excuse me, increase in cafes and coffee drinking. This boom may be due in part to the influence of American TV programmes, but it's also a result of our increasingly digital lifestyle, which has turned cafes into workplaces for millions of freelancers. London also supposedly introduced Europe to the flat white, an espresso-based coffee drink made with steamed milk that's been popular in Australia and New Zealand for years. It's no secret that Scandi countries positively adore coffee, and Norway is no different. In fact, Norway is the second most avid coffee-drinking country in the world after Finland. Oslo, in particular, appreciates a good cup of joe, with a preference for light roasts that bring out the coffee's natural aroma. Daily coffee breaks are practically mandatory in Norway, but unlike cafes in London and New York, coffee shops in Oslo are a place for community rather than computers. Although most countries are adjoined and adoring coffee, not all love it in all forms. Coffee pods are banned from German government buildings. This rule was established in 2016 because it was found to create unnecessary waste that contained aluminium. Coffee was also believed to be punishable by death during the the 17th century Ottoman Empire. It was believed that coffee contained mind-altering effects. The ruler of this period believed it to be a type of narcotic and banned it from public consumption. It's also rumoured that you should avoid drinking coffee when stressed. This can supposedly result in levels of hallucination. It's no surprise that Americans consume 400 million cups of coffee per day. 
On average, 250 cups of espresso and coffee drinks are sold per day at almost any espresso drive-through business with a great location. Studies have shown you would need to consume more than 70 cups of coffee to kill an average-sized person. This translates to three cups of coffee every hour for 24 hours for it to be lethal. So next time you're feeling bad about your third coffee of the day, or the fact that you treated yourself to a coffee every morning before work, don't. You're not alone. And the next item, this is uh, more uh, in keeping with uh, December. And this one is the tradition of sending Christmas cards going back to Victorian times. Royal Mail postmen wore bright red uniforms and were nicknamed Robins or Redbreasts. Artists drew postboxes and postmen delivering cards, but then later drew the bird delivering them instead of the postman. Previously, Robins were linked to Christmas and Christianity. One story says that a small brown bird flapped its wings to revive the fire in the stable where Jesus was born. In the process, its breast was scorched bright red. Mary declared it was a sign of the bird's kind heart, which would pass to its descendants to wear proudly forevermore. Christmas pudding and its origins in the medieval times, but now has become a traditional part of Christmas dinner in many countries. There is an idea that it should consist of 13 ingredients to symbolise Jesus and his 12 disciples and prepared on a stir-up Sunday, the Sunday before Advent. There is also a tradition of including small silver coins or tokens served by flaming the pudding after pouring brandy over it. So there you are. There's a bit of uh, background into the tradition of sending Christmas cards. And my final uh, article on this theme, uh, not Christmas that is, just uh, different uh, topics, uh, windmills, which are part of our national heritage. Postmills are the most common type of windmill, where the main structure of the mill is balanced on a large upright post, allowing the sails to rotate to face th into the wind. They usually have steep steps and rails on the outside of the mill. Smock mills have distinctive six or eight sloping sides, mostly clad with horizontal weatherboarding. They sit on a brick base which can support up to a five-storey building. Only the cap rotates to bring the sails into the wind, named after clothing worn by farmers. Tower mills are constructed on brick or stone, usually round, and only the cap at the top is rotated rather than the whole body of the mill. They have large thick walls at the base to support the weight of all the upper stories, making them more robust in bad weather and able to support larger sails. More mills are being restored back to working order, with sails refitted and grinding stones repaired supported by volunteers milling flour the traditional way. Mills are open to the public in the summer season on heritage open day events and national mills weekends, and quite a few have tea rooms as, and sell souvenirs. So watching a full set of sails turning and a creaking in the wind is so satisfying when you have a cup of tea. Now I'm going to return to uh, general items. <coughs> A simply amazing rescue dog who helps his owner face the struggles of anxiety and autism is in the running to win a national award. Kratu, a Carpathian myoritic shepherd mix who lives with his owner Tess Eagle Swan in Newmarket, has made the top four in the People's Pet of the Year awards. Tess, who was diagnosed with autism three years ago, said she struggles with leaving the house due to the condition and anxiety. The 58-year-old has had Kratu since he was a puppy rescued from Romania, and the 8-year-old Pooch helps his owner when she struggles with sensory overload. 
Kratu has built up a following on social media. He has more than 10,000 followers on Instagram and has appeared several times at the Crufts Dog Show. Several clips from the show have gone viral after Kratu repeatedly ignores the route through the agility course. But Kratu has also become an emotional support dog for Tess since her autism diagnosis and a book about the pair is due for release next year. Tess is hoping Kratu will be named Pet of the Year in the People's Pet Awards when the winner is announced next month. She said, I don't have any support other than Kratu. He's the reason I get up every morning. Kratu loves to see people, so he's the polar opposite to me. Children love him, the elderly love him, and everybody loves him. I have to face anxiety and couldn't cope without him. He faces every day with such positivity and spreads joy and happiness. Being autistic is hard with communication, but for the first time in my life, I'm happy with him. He's my sunshine boy. I love his sheer unadulterated joy and naughtiness. It makes me laugh. I could not imagine my life without Kratu. He's simply amazing, she added. It's a nice story. Now this one is, um, I have spoken about this before. It's the Abbey 1000 and it's celebrations to mark the millennium of the Abbey in St Edmund, which have been postponed until 2022. But the paper has been continuing with the story of the Abbey. And this one is headed, The Town Starts to Rebuild. Now, before I continue with this article, I should point out there are two words in this article, which I had to look up on the uh, Oxford English Dictionary to find out how to pronounce them. So I'll draw your attention to it when I come to them and see what you think. An unforeseen consequence of the demise of the Abbey was that the poor of the town were no longer looked after via arms and charity. Gone were the pittancer and almoner. There were also a shortage of employment for a while. All of this would have to be addressed by the Guildhall Fifis, one of the words, now running the town. Although much later, the Berry Workhouse in College Street was a part solution. That is not to say vagrants and beggars were tolerated. Various means of pretending illness were utilised. Sympathy, a surefire winner. Another consequence saw the townspeople take part take apart the abbey, brick by brick, stone by stone. If Everbury residents wanted their revenge on the all-powerful rule of the abbey, the time had now arrived with the realisation of it not returning eventually sinking in. In 1617, a strange consent was granted to Mary Middlemore, a maid of honour to Queen Anne of Denmark, the wife of James I and VI, to search the abbey grounds for treasure. Permission given as James was a great supporter of the town. Whether any treasure was found is not known. In 1720, Major Richardson Pack, a prominent member of Bury Society, for some unfathomable reason, pulled down the abbot's palace, which had only been refurbished some time before. This was in deep contrast to houses being built into the Abbey's west front by the end of the 17th century. By 1767, most of the Ashlar limestone blocks of the Abbey had been removed, leaving just a flint and mortar core, evident today. Slowly but surely, the prosperity of the town had been enhanced by the wool trade and a better sort of people. Quality buildings were being built. Coupla House, there's another one. The Market Cross, Clopton's Asylum, the Athenium and the Manor House, just a few examples. Cook Row was renamed Abbeygate Street and the town described as the Montpellier of England by one visitor. 
Those who had lived in timber-framed houses had them georganised brick or stucco fronts, giving the illusion of new properties. This newness continued with the growth of non-conformism, a mistrust and memory of religion. Abbey style would lead to a wealth of their fine chapels and churches. The town, now a popular, fashionable place to live. And that's the end of that article. And the next article is Bronze and Iron Age finds are making headlines after being unearthed by metal detectorists. <coughs> Excuse me. A Mildenhall schoolgirl discovered a once-in-a-lifetime Bronze Age axe hoard on only her third dig. <coughs> Sorry. And while an Iron Age war trumpet, the first of its kind to have been found in England, is set to fetch £3,000 at auction next month. Millie Hardwick, 13, has left veteran diggers envious of her beginner's luck as she strikes gold almost every week. Now she has become a poster girl for metal detecting despite being some four decades younger than the typical enthusiast. Mum Claire, 48, said... On a couple of digs, people have gone, oh God, she's here now, so we might as well go home. Millie discovered an axe hoard dating back to 1300 BC on her third time out in the field near Royston. Archaeologists had to excavate the find made up of 65 pieces, and Amelia took a day off school to formally sign it over to the local coroner. Claire said, a lot of people have said it's a once-in-a-lifetime find. The other metal detectorists are really pleased for her. Many also featured in the front page of The Searcher, a leading metal detecting magazine. Many who wants to be an archaeologist said, Last Sunday when we were out, someone stopped and looked at me and said, You're the one who found the axe hoard. Then another person came up to me and said, and did the same thing. Schoolgirl makes discoveries every time she goes out, each weekend in the fields of East Anglia, with Dad Colin, 51, who's been metal detecting for four years. Millie said, Whenever I go out, I find stuff. I find a gold-plated button and a Queen Elizabeth coin. It's just nice being in the field for hours and you get a signal and it could literally be anything. Metal detectorist Ivan Bailey, who's 60, discovered his Iron Age war trumpet lodged in a lump of clay in a Bardwell field in 2016. The boar-headed wind instrument, known as a carnix, was once used to strike fear into soldiers in bloody battles almost 2,000 years ago. At six centimetres long, and I think that might be a misprint, I suspect it's six metres long, judging by the context of the sentence. So at six metres long, it is a metre shorter than the typical bronze carnix, which was used throughout the Celtic era in wars and ceremonies, but it could be a broken fragment. Experts, ah, so maybe it is six centimetres, I do beg your pardon. Experts at Moises Hall Museum in Bury St Edmunds established that it resembled a carnix or war trumpet, but it was much smaller. It was the only known carnix to be found in England and the first in Britain since 1816 when one was discovered in Scotland. In 2004, archaeologists discovered a 100 BC deposit at Tinitijac in Corrèze, France, or that might be pronounced Tinijac. The carnix is expected to fetch 2000 to £3,000 when it goes under the hammer at Dick's Noonan Webb Auction House in London on December the 1st. Proceeds from the auction will be split between Ivan and the landowner. Nigel Mills, a consultant at Dick's Noonan Webb, said the only known carnix found in Britain was in 1816 in Deskford, Scotland and was a lip-read instrument mounted on a vertical hollow pole with a mouthpiece, mouthpiece at the bottom. It is now in the National Museum of Scotland.
I'm now going to return to some letters. <clears throat> and this one is from Ian Smith of Bury St Edmunds. Questions about vaccine. Sir, after reading a recent edition of the East Anglia Daily Times, I sent the following email to the local democracy reporter who wrote the article concern concerning COVID-19. This is the email. As part of the East Anglian Daily Times grab-a-jab campaign, under a picture was the following sentence. People who end up in the intensive care often have not been vaccinated. Is this locally? If so, where locally? Please give us the facts and figures to back this up, up this claim. Questions arise such as, Will Britain follow the example of Israel in wanting their citizens to have a fourth booster jab? Will there eventually be demand to have a regular six-monthly jabs? If citizens refuse to consent, will there be an increase in coercion, as has been evident in other parts of the UK and further abroad? For example, no jab, no job, and no jab, no freedom of movement. And that was from Ian Smith of Bury St Edmunds. The next letter is from Peter Booth Smith, Melton Park. Other important matters. Sir, I distinguish between Remainers, whose beliefs I respect, but do not share, and Ramoners, who frankly have just become a bore. I have no idea whether Brexit will, in the long run, prove to have success or failure nor, I suspect, does anyone else. The whole position has become so confused by the worldwide COVID pandemic, which has totally disrupted supply chains and finances. The facts are impossible to establish. May I respectfully suggest Boris and Brexit be given a rest and we turn our minds to other important matters, matters such as will Ipswich Town be promoted and can Hedgehog survive? And that was a letter from Peter Booth Smith, Melton Park. And the next letter is from John Booth of Bramford. And the title of this one is Illegal Immigration. Sir, a gang of people smugglers convicted of conspiring to facilitate illegal immigration must be considering themselves extremely unlucky for being apprehended with 69 potential immigrants. On the south coast of England, up to a thousand people a day have been making the crossing from France, many ably assisted by our own border force vessels and the RNLI. That's from John Booth of Bramford. Now I'd like to continue with another uh, general item. And just bear with me a second while I ruffle through all my papers here and get some of the items out. Right, now this one is headed The crisis facing NHS dentistry is revealed. Access to an NHS dentist in two of Suffolk's largest towns is virtually non-existent. A survey by this newspaper has found revealing the difficulties facing unregistered patients. We attempted to make contact with NHS dental practices in Ipswich and Bury St Edmunds that are listed on the NHS website, not including orthodontists who correct the position of the teeth. We were able to get responses from 17 of the 27 listed, and none are currently registering new NHS adult patients, and only one said they were taking on children. A handful said they have waiting lists with one and four hundred people, one at four hundred people, and one surgery said people were getting accepted from their lists. The crisis facing, facing NHS dentistry is leaving patients with a toothache for months, and some are going to extreme lengths, even extracting their own teeth. Only this month, the charity Dent Aid, which offers free emergency clinics, to those in need, came to Bury St Edmunds for the first time to relieve people from toothache misery. Speaking in Parliament, Waveney MP Peter Aldous said, 
access to NHS dentists was being a problem that had been brewing for some time, exacerbated by COVID. And there are now parts of the country, particularly rural and coastal areas, that are dental deserts. Mark Jones, spokesman for the campaign group Toothless in Suffolk, described the lack of NHS dental services as a disgrace and a complete dereliction of duty to the general public by not providing access to NHS dentistry where there's a need. He said, unfortunately, our survey shows the norm across the country. He said, we have got to bring dentistry into the 21st century. Now, with a greater level of funding, that will ensure treatment is available for everyone. Andy Yacoub, chief executive of patient group Healthwatch Suffolk, said during the pandemic, two-thirds of their calls have been about NHS dental care, but they have not spoken with one person who has managed to find an NHS dentist. He said there seemed to be a focus on those with urgent dental needs are being told to call 111 and refer to an urgent dental centre, but added, that's fine as long as they are meeting those needs. But the problem is, dental care is almost all about prevention and self-care. If we are going to be in the situation where our oral health deteriorates gradually until the point where we can only access emergency care, that's a horrible situation to be in. Healthwatch Suffolk has published a report on people's experiences. Our next item is a village housing development is agreed by council committee. Final approval has been granted for 69 homes in Botsdale deferred in the summer over design concerns. Mid-Suffolk District Council's Development Control B Committee voted unanimously on Wednesday to approve the final matters around scale, layout, appearance and landscaping for Bennett Homes, proposals of Disroad to be known as Skylarks. Outline approval was granted in July 2018, with approval on the final matters deferred in July because of fears raised that it had not considered the village's neighbourhood plan design checklist enough. With designs dubbed bland and lacking in distinctiveness, since then developers have met with the Parish Council to make a number of changes. Among those have been reconfigured parking arrangements, an improved pedestrian footpath through the site and instances of overlooking on bungalows removed and a mixed species buffer hedge being included. The proposals will feature 45 two-storey market houses and 24 affordable homes, 16 designated as affordable rent. The land is allocated for development in the parish's neighbourhood plan. Well, now we're coming to the end of this issue of uh, News Talk and I'd like to um, acknowledge the papers that we take most of the articles from, the East Anglia Daily Times, Eastern Echo, Newmarket Journal. I'd also like to thank all the people that put the uh, USB sticks in the pouches and send them out. And also I'd like to thank Joan Hogarth, who's been a producer for me. And from myself and Joan, it's goodbye. podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.